In April 2011, Sergeant Luis Caluse takes on a new case. Chris Smith, who'd been living in Laguna Beach, is missing. He's supposedly on a trip around the world. But while Chris's brother believes Chris is likely stuck somewhere in Africa, Chris's father wonders if this trip is a hoax and fears his son's former business partner might be somehow involved. Steve Smith has spoken to Ed Shin already, but soon Sergeant Louise Calouse will get Ed into the station for a talk. I'm Matt Gutman from ABC News. This is 2020's Cutthroat Inc. Sergeant Calouse is a pretty big deal in the small Laguna Beach Police Department. She's the supervisor of investigations with a lot of responsibility. Captain Jason Kravitz is her boss. So uh, Sergeant Kluse would have been responsible for all the detectives, the um, narcotics team. She also was in charge of property evidence, the court liaison activities, presenting cases to court. Any special investigative um, internal affairs cases she would have received had about 15 people reporting to her. Kluse is experienced. She spent 27 years on the force and rose through the ranks. In the 80s, she was vocally gay and tenaciously fought to get a spot as a cop in the police department. She's got a big personality and spices up the drab detective's uniforms with colorful scarves. When she's not on the clock, she rides a Harley-style motorcycle. Sergeant Kaluse gets the lowdown from Chris's father, Steve, and the very next day, she talks to Paul Smith, Chris's brother. Father and son have very different theories about what's really going on. Steve suspects the emails from Chris are fake and that something bad may have happened to him in California. But Paul is sure the emails really are from Chris and that he is traveling on a fake passport because he's afraid of being sued. He thinks the email stopped because something bad happened to him in Africa. Cops are trained to listen to but not be swayed by other people's theories. This is Calusa's case to investigate, and she sets out to do that. We reached out to Sergeant Calusa, who's now retired. She didn't want to be interviewed on the record, but we have the official case file that documents her investigation. First, Chris's passport. The same day she speaks to Paul, Calouse reaches out to the Department of Homeland Security to find out when and where Chris's passport had been used. They have no record of him leaving or entering the U.S. since December 2009, about six months before he disappeared. The U.S. State Department confirms what Homeland Security told her, but an official at the State Department told her it wouldn't have been hard to get out of the country using a fake passport if Chris flew out of a place with, quote, lax security like Mexico. The U.S. official told her that was also true of the countries Chris was supposedly traveling to. Then she looks into Chris's money. She checks his credit report and finds one credit card with Chase and one checking account. The credit card hasn't been used in almost a year, and Chase tells her a note from Chris in December informed them he was out of the country. 
There had been no transactions on his Bank of America checking account since Chris's journey began. What about Chris's car? Well, Calouse tracks down his white Range Rover. It had been found about 400 miles north of Orange County in San Jose, California. And she finds out it was repossessed last November because payments on it had stopped. She sends the San Jose Police Department a missing person flyer. They report back that they canvassed the area, but nobody recognized the picture of Chris. Then Chris's apartment. The police report says someone had been paying rent for six months after he was gone. And the monthly bills were, quote, mostly paid by a man named Ed Shin. Chris had worked with Ed Shin. The two owned a company together called the 800 Exchange. Chris was last seen at the company office, but when Calouse goes to the building, she learns the company had moved four months before without paying off the lease. Then the sergeant tracks down the former property manager and learns something that gets her attention. The report says the property manager told Calouse that at one point, a building porter told her there was, quote, a lot of blood on the walls and carpet in one of the offices. Property manager wasn't exactly sure when, but tells Calouse it could have been around last June. The property manager also told Calouse the porter had said he saw an Asian man with a towel wrapped around his arm who said he'd cut himself while slicing an apple. A week later, the police report says Calouse talks to that porter who saw the blood. What he describes must have been quite a scene. He says blood had squirted up about five feet on the wall. But he remembers it happened in October, not around June like the property manager thought. He says there was a June incident too, but it was different. So, if the porter is right, then there were actually two occasions in which a cleanup was needed in Suite 123, but only the second one involved blood. And if the sighting of a man who cut himself slicing an apple was in October, it couldn't possibly be related to Chris's disappearance in June. Calouse then tries to get access to all of Chris's emails, something the Smith family has been especially eager to do since they could reveal where they've been coming from and what he's been telling other people. She writes to Yahoo asking for his email records, but is turned down. Yahoo says it needs a subpoena or a search warrant to provide that kind of information. But there's a problem. Getting a search warrant is only possible if a district attorney agrees there's probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. Calouse does speak to an assistant district attorney. They agree there's no probable cause to believe a crime has been committed. So the email quest is a dead end. By the end of May, Sergeant Calouse has been working on this case for about a month and a half. In an email to Steve a few weeks into the investigation, she tells him she had put off contacting Ed Shin because she first wanted to see if there was anything, quote, nefarious that pointed to him as a possible suspect in Chris's disappearance. So far, she writes, she has not. So it's not until the second week of June that Ed Shin arrives at the Laguna Beach Police Department wearing a sleek black suit and tie. He's about to speak with Sergeant Calouse and Officer Colleen Wallach. 
The three of them sit down at a round table in a small room. Ed is not a suspect. This is just an interview. Caloose is jovial by nature, so she immediately tries to establish rapport with Ed. She asks about the business Ed and Chris were in. The audio in the recording isn't great, so sometimes it's hard to understand them. And since you were obviously the last person to spend time with Chris, I'm hoping you can give me some details as to how this all started. Um, so maybe we can start back there. I, my understanding is you guys owned a business together with partners and then... Ed tells them Chris was anxious about the lawsuits and was afraid he might even get arrested. And anyway, he thought the country was headed to catastrophe and had always wanted to escape. You know, his mindset was that, you know, he hated this country. It was just a big, um, you know, uh, what you call it, like an oligarchy. I guess, for lack of better terms, where only a few people control everything. Yeah, and we're all just puppets kind of deal, and so he wanted to get out. He always wanted to, uh, to live out of the country. Ed says when he bought Chris out of the 800 exchange, he gave him the money he needed to escape. Ed says he'd wired a small fortune to Chris via an account in the Cayman Islands. Sergeant Calouse asks Ed if he has the paperwork to prove it. Do you have that paperwork? I have. I can probably get it. He says, of course he does. I can give you the wire transfers for sure. There's wire transfers that basically would document the fact that we may be... Ed also tells her how he says Chris got a fake passport. Did you ever see this passport that Chris got? No, I never saw the passport. Were you with him when he picked up the passport? Yes. And that happened where? In LA. Okay, how did you go from here to LA? Well, we drove from Vegas, so on the way back, we stopped, uh-huh. and he had some guy meet him there. That gave him the passport? I don't, I Did don't you know. See that? I didn't actually see the exchange. I didn't see the transaction. All I know... The last time Ed says he saw Chris was to sign their deal. And then uh, I went by there in the afternoon and signed it. Amen. Yeah. And, um, you know, we shook hands, hugs, and, and I said, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to take off. Then, Calouse asks about the incident when Chris supposedly urinated and vomited in the office. He tells her that was a horror show. Yeah, the place smelled like piss and vomit. And I went in there. He wasn't even there. Okay. And then I, I said, what were you doing? He's like, well, I was writing scripts all night. I was like, do you know you, I mean, do you, know you trashed the office? And he's like, what do you mean? He said he had completely blacked out. So it was really, I mean, I had to order a carpet cleaner to come steam clean the carpets. And he had broken, like he broke a couple bottles of wine. And, you know, so, I mean, it was like, it was a mess. And it was like, I think we had to, when we painted, like, I'm trying to think, his office is in the corner and there's a hallway. So one of the walls, one of the walls had a hole in it, so we had to patch that up. Like he had punched the hole and then... Close moves on to the time the porter saw blood in the office. Ed had told the building staff he'd cut himself while slicing an apple. Calouse knew about that, but now she hears a very different story. Okay, I, I really don't want to 
talk about this, but I mean, I had those. I mean, I literally, I, I literally tried to kill myself because it was too much for me, and 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 that happened in May. That happened towards the end of May. Yeah. Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. What time of day? Probably in the uh, early evening. You were at the office by yourself. Mm-hmm. Like everyone had left, okay. and I, I had a complete breakdown, mental breakdown, and you know everything. You know, we were. Business and personal troubles had driven Ed to suicidal despair. How did you get yourself to the doctor? I didn't. Why not? I just, I wrapped the wound. I mean, I bled everywhere and, you know, I wasn't, it took a while to recover. Did you go to the doctor? No. Well, eventually, but well after. Well, okay. Officer Wallach asks if he's told anybody about his suicide attempt. Did you tell anybody else? No, absolutely not. About it? No. You know, did know, I did tell, I called a painter. To cover it. And he, I mean, he obviously saw everything, and, and you know, I, without explaining much to my Calouse asks Ed for the names of the outside cleaning company and the painter he brought in so that she can check out his story. So Ed is saying the blood on the office floor and walls was his own. But he says the incident didn't happen in October, like the porter said, nor in June, like the building manager thinks. No, Ed says this happened in late May. That would make it a week or even two before Chris was last seen. I think, I don't know where he is. I mean, honestly, I think he's the other side of the world. And I think he doesn't want to be found. Though he has no idea where Chris might be now, Ed says he's counting on Chris coming back. That's why he agreed to pay Chris's rent for half a year when Chris asked him to. After all, they still have to finish that software project they'd invested so much in. Because, well, his thing was he was going to be back to build the software. That was going to be his full-time job. Then Ed has a question of his own. How do you investigate a case like this? How would, be, how would you be able to locate Given the circumstances, they tell him, it's a tough nut to crack. Most likely, it will only resolve when Chris turns up, one way or another. A little while later, Calouse brings up Chris's dad, Steve Smith. Steve has told Calouse he thinks Chris is not really traveling, but rather that Ed killed him right here in Orange County. There's no way. Officer Wallach reminds Ed that Steve is an anguished parent. He has to look for an answer that makes sense to him, even if it seems crazy. But Ed points out that Steve Smith hasn't gotten on a plane to Africa or anywhere else to actually look for his son. Instead of poking around in California, wouldn't it make more sense to look for him in the places he might actually be? Ed's heard a lot of stories from Chris and Paul about what a capable guy their dad is. So why isn't he out there? They all agree it would be terrible if Chris stayed cut off from his family or his journey ended badly. Ed even hopes that one day 
Chris will be back and they'll reconnect. So I'm, I'm hoping that you know, I'll hear from Chris when he's ready to talk to me. Calouse tells Ed that someone who's traveling on a fake passport can be impossible to track down. Calouse gives Ed her card. He promises to let her know if Chris contacts him. He then circles back to thank Calouse and Wallach for helping him open up about his suicide attempt. That's the first time I ever even said it out loud. Go The interview lasted almost three hours. It is the first time that any investigator has sat Ed Shin down to hear what he has to say. When Detective Julia Bowman later reviews it, she appreciates how her boss kept Ed talking. It appears watching it like she's bought his story, but that's a detective tactic to get someone to... uh, confide in you or build rapport is to make them think that you're you're buying everything that they've got to sell. Typically, if you just let somebody talk and the interview is over an hour long, you're letting that person create their own story. Ed's interview had a lot in it to follow up on. One of the big ones is that Chris had a lot of money to travel on because Ed had paid him almost half a million dollars. Sergeant Calouse asked him for the paperwork that proved that. Two weeks later, Ed does send some documents related to one of their business agreements, but nothing about wire transfers or Chris's money. Ed says he needs more time to get those records. But Ed never does send anything like that. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Steve Smith, mostly from home in Oregon, and Calouse have been in regular contact. Steve often sends her suggestions about things she might look into. But on June 21st, he writes to say that if she did not know any other directions to investigate and has finished her investigation, he wants to, quote, pursue different avenues like other embassies and those accounts in the Caymans. Calouse writes back saying she isn't done. She's continuing to make calls and follow up. But given what she's learned, she says... She thinks Chris left the country of his own accord, that he was trying to escape, quote, looming lawsuits, and that using a fake passport has made it more difficult to recreate his journey. And she ends with this, quote, I will continue to talk to more people and assist in any way I can, and I will share any info that comes my way. Sincerely, Louise Calouse. 
A week after that, before she's had a chance to complete a report on the Ed Shin interview, she has to go into surgery to repair a back injury she'd got on the job, followed by a medical leave to recuperate. So she hands the case over to Detective Julia Bowman. In San Juan Capistrano, about 15 miles from Laguna Beach, is a private investigator who's looking at what seems to be an unrelated case. His name is Joe DeLu. He's a retired cop. Sure, he's a police officer, uh, 13 years, um, and dealt with a state-level municipality, and then medically retired in 1999. Why medically retired? I've uh, gotten one too many fights, and I have uh, five herniated discs. Five discs. DeLue's been a private investigator for more than a decade, and he's just set himself up in a new office. His new landlord asks him for a favor. He knew we were a private investigation firm, and he had asked if we do skip tracing, which is locating people who skipped out on something or another. DeLue says he was told that what had been skipped out on was a $40,000 bill. The company that allegedly stiffed the landlord had been in Suite 123, just a few doors down from Deleuze's office in Suite 127. The company was the 800 Exchange. And Joe Deleuze's task is to find its owner, a man named Ed Shin. The first order of business is to look into who this Ed Shin guy is. And... We had found out that Ed was involved in some type of criminal and civil uh, issue involving another company. The crime was embezzlement. The property manager tells DeLue he's not the only one who's been asking questions about Ed Shin. A local law enforcement agency was in there trying to get a hold of Ed Shin as well because his business partner, um, someone filed a missing persons report. So that kind of perked us up a little bit, too. Because the more we're starting to kind of learn about Ed Shen, this is just another one of those indicators. It's, oh, okay, this is interesting. What he hears next really gets his attention. Uh, we also heard at the same time, same conversation that, yeah, get this, um, Ed Shen, right about this time when uh, his partner, allegedly, uh, Chris, allegedly was bought out by Ed, um, takes his money and leaves. Well, Ed had called and asked how to get blood out of carpet. So this, I mean, all in the same conversation from when you have, hey, someone's looking for Ed because his partner turned up missing. Right then and there, I go, okay, something, something is up. Around the time Deleuze starts looking into this case, the Chris Smith missing person file lands on the desk of Detective Julia Bowman. Bowman's young, just 27, and she looks even younger. She's only been a cop for about two years, but she has worked hard and impressed her bosses enough to make her a detective. She has a number of cases to handle now, but to her, for some reason, that Chris Smith case looks especially interesting. They've been a detective for not even three months, and they don't really have like a missing person training course to go to, because typically... They're not suspicious, so you don't need, like, additional training in how to investigate them. And so she starts plotting a timeline, organizing for herself the information that Calouse gathered. Which was easy for me to do, just sorting through her, her stuff. But also that's kind of the way that, in my mind, 
I lay everything out there and see what I have. Like if you had a jigsaw puzzle and you, you know, shake out the box and then turn over all the pieces and you put the, all the corners together, all the border pieces together. Like that was kind of what I was doing with my timeline. But Bowman says in her timeline, the story of what Chris has been doing does not match with her sense of how a person like him would normally behave. Like that he was supposed to pick up his brother at the airport and he didn't. And that he just had a romantic with his girlfriend and then breaks up via email. So if he's a businessman and a successful one and he's just up and leaving the country, he would wrap things up with his finances or his personal belongings. The more puzzle pieces Bowman says she finds, the more she thinks there has to be something wrong. Everything was a red flag. So there wasn't anything that was like, oh, I'm sure he's fine. Okay, this explains that. There was none of that. It was all so strange. Like what would make sense is, okay, he's had some type of psychotic break clearly to leave his family and go do this international surf trip. Now, there's plenty for Bowman to do without spending time on a case that seemed to be going nowhere. Laguna Beach is a very small police department. I'm the only crimes person detective. I have a bunch of other cases, including I was currently working a cold case homicide, also working a serial rape case. So I had a lot of other things on my desk, but as I could tackle different ones of the leads on the missing person, then I would kind of get into it more and more. But something about that Chris Smith case bothers her. She's starting to think that a crime might have been committed. But she's also the new kid on the block and worries she might be climbing out on a limb. She feels the need for more allies who believe in what she's doing, especially one who might even help her when the time comes for things like search warrants. And I got followed into the parking lot by a detective named Julia Bowman from the Laguna Beach Police Department, who literally followed me to my car saying, there's something wrong with this. In the next episode of Cutthroat Inc., a stunning development changes everything. It starts with Joe DeLue snooping some more. We're walking around with our flashlight. And that's when we discover some blood. And we'll end with a swarm of cops and a luminal test meant to find traces of blood. And it lights up like a Christmas tree. What they discover is more than traces of blood, a lot more. There's blood on the walls. There's blood on the back of the door. Made me believe that it was much more serious a confrontation than anyone would have thought. Cutthroat Inc. is a production of ABC Audio and 2020, reported by me, Matt Gutman, written by me and our producer, Richard O'Regan, produced and edited by Susie Liu and Oluwakemi Aladisui. Additional reporting by producers Tim Gorin, Sonny Antrim. Our editorial producer was Juan Perrin. Casey Tomchek was our production assistant. Additional support by Lydia Noon, Dana Schaefer, Jenny Goldstein, and Marwa Muwaki. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Our researchers are Felisa Fine, Natalie Savitz, and Brad Martin. Special thanks to Josh Cohan and Stacia Deshishku. Terry Lickstein is our executive producer of this podcast, and David Sloan is our senior executive producer of Network Primetime Content. I'm Matt Gutman.